HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. It is the last episode for the spring season here at Heritage Radio Network, and uh, we're coming back in May 6th, so not a very long break, but I think it's fitting that we're going to be talking about a cookbook that has um, a more reflective tone. It is part armchair foodie philosophy, part cookbook, and 100% Tamar Adler. It is... Something old, something new, and we're joined in the studio by with Tamar. Hi. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining, and welcome back. Um, it's been a while since we had you on the station for an everlasting meal. Was that five years ago? I think so? it was seven years seven ago. Years it took ago. me a really long time to write another book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this one took a lot of digging. So, you know, this book is about old recipes revisited. Actually, that is... Classic Recipes Revisited is the subtitle. Um, so 
let's talk about old recipes, old cookbooks. This is something that like fascinates people. I'm fa- I I'm a huge fan of old cookbooks, and uh, you know, a few weeks ago we had an author on the show who tried to cook her way through everything that Benjamin Franklin ate. Heavens. Um, yeah, it was fun. And, uh, you know, I don't know anyone who isn't just fascinated by an old cookbook that they might see at a junk shop. And, you know, there's like a vintage cookbook store, shout out to Bonnie Slotnick, that you can spend hours in just flipping through and flipping through. So it sounds like you did a lot of that for this book. I did. I did. And I do it all the time. I, mm-hmm. I mean, like you, I'm completely intrigued by them. And I think I could spend, I mean, I, I could I could go on doing versions of this probably forever just because I don't know exactly what we look through old cookbooks for, but I know we must never exactly find it because we keep on reading them. And it's so delightful. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you, as someone who gets a kick out of this, what is the allure of old cookbooks? Is it funny? Is it like, oh, ha, ha, look at those loaves of ham? That's never been what it does for me. Okay. And I've, I know, I wrote about the Betty Crocker recipe box, which was um, a, a box of recipes that was kind of given to young housewives in the, um, in the 70s for the New York Times Magazine. And so many people who were interested in those recipes um, now, you know, I wrote it a couple of years ago, we're interested in the kind of kitsch appeal. And that's never what it is for me. I actually see so much beauty. And there, I think there's so much information um, about people's lives mm-hmm. and about the way we socialize and about our values. And, um, and I also, for me, more often than not, there's something of real lasting culinary value mm-hmm. um, in recipes. And sort of the weirder they are and the harder they are to really see something delicious in, the more important it is to me to spend time with them mm-hmm. and, and find that thing. Um, because like with the Betty Crocker recipes, you know, it was, they look so ridiculous to us now. They were for like all those loaves that you were just talking about mm-hmm. that it would be really easy to just kind of laugh at them and throw the whole box out the window. Uh-huh. Um, but there's, there's often something, definitely not in every recipe, but in all the recipes in this book, uh, there is something. And in a lot of recipes that I didn't even get to include, there's something wonderful that, that is easy to lose when, you know, times change and fashions change. Right. Um, you kind of stole my next question, like out of <laughs> your just words were just so exacting. Um, but, you know, are we missing out on some wisdom that may have been forgotten throughout the times? Or is it more just a matter of fashion? I think, I think, I think both. I mean, mm-hmm. I think the part of the reason that that we are that so many of us love old cookbooks and old recipes is because there is so much there. There is culinary wisdom. There is information about um, the similarities between life now and life then. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is some aesthetic difference, you know, and and that can be so exciting. Like the frictive nature of different styles, aesthetic differences is so wonderful. I think it's a really pleasurable thing. It's why we go to vintage shops. Mm-hmm. It's why we buy, you know, chipped chipped ceramics when we could buy new ceramics. Because right. there's something wonderful about having something from a different time. Mm-hmm. And I think there's also something really pleasurable in um, dealing with any matter or material that's been used. Mm. You know, knowing that other... Splatters on yeah, the pages. Yeah, splatters on the pages, you know. Thinking about who... Fights between cooks that happened as they were cooking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
um, family lore. I mean, there's everything. And there's this, there's a professor at, I forget what university that also writes under the pen name Aranti Cherm. Uh-huh. And I quote him in, I think, the introduction to that book, talking about um, what's so wonderful about reading old cooking terminology. Mm. And what's so wonderful about it, he puts it perfectly, and so I'm just going to quote him again, okay. but is that it's a poetry of lost specifics. Hmm. And I don't, I don't think there's um, any more precise way of saying that, you know, you, when you read old recipes and you read techniques simply don't need to be used anymore. We don't need to singe and draw our meat. It comes that way. Right. You might not even know what it means. No. Um, you know, but <laughs> essentially, we don't the, need the, to do it because I'm not singeing and You're not singeing and drawing. Um, but when you read them, you realize it's a, it's a vernacular, it's a culinary vernacular that is somewhere underneath all of the culinary processes that we now okay. partake in. So, so it's just a change of choice of words. Well, no, it's more than that okay. because we, right now, I mean, singeing means is, you know, uh, the process of passing flame over the skin of an animal to get okay. rid of um, feathers or hair. Hmm. That's still done. Yeah. But it's done yeah. in a different place. It isn't done in the home. Um, we, can, we can buy our meat cut up so we don't have to do the, breaking it into quarters and taking out the entrails and all that. Um, so it refers to stuff that doesn't actually have to happen it, in the home sphere anymore. But so it's so wonderful, you know, because it happens in um, generally in processing facilities. Mm-hmm. Like that's where your meat gets all these wow. things that you used to have to do at home. Um, it's so neat to realize that there are processes that are, that are no longer part of the daily cook's job, yeah. but that, were part of getting food on our table. And there's a whole language attached to it. Gosh, um, we are so lazy now. We have it so easy. <laughs> we do have it easy. And I mean, in the future, I bet uh-huh. some of the stuff in this cookbook I bet their, their 30-minute meals is more like three-hour meals. Yeah, <laughs> cooking, like, right. There was some, some, some pre-Rachel Ray mm-hmm. and pre-I don't know whomever um, and the whatever the precursor of you know television or radio or whatever it was sitting around a fire yeah. being like here you can cook this for you know in six hours or less i got the formula yeah. yeah yeah um you seem to relish the prose of the old cookbooks too i love it um you yeah. mentioned just a few seconds ago and you mentioned in this book you know something like there's no better way of saying it than so and so um you mentioned Marion Harland in this context a couple times. In the beginning, you write, there's no better answer to how to find a good radish than what she said in her 19, sorry, 1871 Common Sense Cookery. Good radishes are crisp to the teeth, look cool, and taste hot. I mean, what's better than That's that? That's sassy. That's a really it's, good copy. It's sassy, and it's <laughs> perfect. I know. I mean, a part of what I, I've... When I first thought about this book what I wanted to do and I'm, I'm glad I didn't do, but what I had originally wanted to do was literally just string together old recipes that I thought were beautiful. Mm -hmm. Somehow finding a way after each one or before each one to explain what was so great about it. But I think that would not be a super useful book. Yeah. Or my publisher didn't Mm -hmm. think so either, but some of the, sometimes, you know, what you find in old, old books of any kind, but certainly in old cookbooks, is that something has already been 
written absolutely perfectly. And right. the rest of us who are you know, trying to find another way to describe a good radish is a fool's errand. <laughs> she got it right. <laughs> Marion Harland nailed it. And she did it, I think, wasn't she also the writer of the oyster roast? Yes, I was just going to point that out. This is a beautiful passage that you bring out from Marion about roast oysters. She, dis- she said, There is no pleasanter frolic for an autumn evening in the regions where oysters are print- plentiful than an impromptu roast in the kitchen. And it goes on, and it's awesome. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And she has, yeah, fireside clicks. And, mm. um, yeah, I mean, the I think... shocking sounds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The sounds of the... You know, you, you picture so like, people sitting around the fire, and the oysters obviously pop open mostly on their own, but you keep a couple of oyster knives around just to... Um, you know, make sure they get thoroughly open. And it's, it's so evocative. Mm-hmm. And, um, and her prose is absolutely gorgeous. So does this make you want to, as a food writer, just throw in the towel and be like, okay, forget it. I can't add to this. Um, I mean, it made me want to do that enough that uh-huh. I did originally suggest just stringing together right. old text. But the truth is that I, you know, MFK Fisher did that. She did string together so old So many people text. wrote about oysters, too. So many people wrote about oysters, yeah. <laughs> she has a book called Here Let Us Feast mm-hmm. um, that's just her favorite food passages from throughout literary history. And it is, I think, the only book of hers that I really think is bad. Mm. It's not fun to read. Okay. Yeah. um, (laughs) It's not fun to read. And I think it's because you don't, you really need a a voice that is contemporary to yours um, speaking to you, I think. And I think when you do that, then you can really illuminate old passages. I think that reading Marion Harland, I hope reading Marion Harland in in Something Old, Something New in my book uh, is, is so pleasant and enjoyable because... The rest, it's not all, you know, pleasant or frolics and fireside clicks. Some (laughs) of it is just a normal person talking. Right. And you you bring this into a modern day context by looking back on it, reflecting on it, what's relevant and why it's, you know, why it's uh, still so, you know, important today to, to read this. Yeah. And whenever I do quote an old recipe directly, I then update the recipe directly mm-hmm. after it. So I, mm-hmm. you know, there were no measurements in her recipe. Um, so I wrote my own that produces the exact same thing, but it tells you how much butter to use and how much chili sauce to use. And um, you share your own fireside clicks, if you will. Um, <laughs> uh, your own uh, cooking uh, patterns and your own opinions throughout this book, which are different a little bit, as you mentioned in the beginning, from from a which is personal to you. You like to simplify things. Often. I'm really lazy. I yes. I wrote that yeah. at the beginning yeah. of, of this book. And it's just true. I you know, I used to be a professional cook um for years. But even then I think I was a little bit lazy. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's laziness in the kitchen more than in other parts of my life, but I just can't quite bear uh the the really painstaking stuff that right. I think you have to want to do either to make classic recipes as they were or to work in fine dining kitchens I don't have the patience for. Well, your so, your laziness is a boon to everyone else's practicality. <laughs> I, I, I hope so. Think, yeah, <laughs> I mean it's very helpful yeah. to know yeah. the most yeah. direct, efficient way to do something well. Still, yeah. um, that still you know satisfied you. Um, so. 
Uh, who, by the way, who is Marion Harlan? Why don't we know these people? I don't know why we don't know them. Uh, well, you know, I think, I, think I do. Common I've never sense heard cookery. Of that. Um, she was a housewife. You know, I, I, there were a lot in the in the 1800s. There were a lot of these housewifery books being published. They were very popular. Um, women's magazines, you know, it did already exist, and it was kind of how women got their information about how to run a household. Um, and I, the ones I love in particular are the ones that have a kind of frugal bent, because yeah. in addition to being lazy, mm-hmm. I am um, parsimonious. I mean, mm-hmm. I just. I save everything. Don't. Yeah. <clears throat> I do not love luxury or excess in mm-hmm. the kitchen. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that I seems d- like traits that other people in the past would norm would you know use. I mean, they had this larder. They'd save their fat. Right. You know, exactly. The, exactly. And they so did the, all the time. You know, those ones: the Frugal Housewife by Lydia Marie Child, I think, and okay. Common Sense um, Cookery by Marion Harland, are just absolutely gorgeous and appeal directly to my sensibilities you know Mm -hmm. how to make the most of everything and um do it sort of as efficiently as possible um i i think we don't know their names because cookbooks do tend to be right at least right now the cookbook industry um this might always have been true is a very kind of what's new what's next who's up who's the most exciting what's what are the flashiest photographs Um, just sort of what's in what's you know and um there's nothing to sell with old books. I, you know, I don't think common sense cookery has been reissued mm-hmm. since I, yeah. I don't know when. I then don't know who chooses and why did the joy of cooking by Irma something <laughs> Romber Romber uh, get chosen to go on forever and ever in editions and um, everybody has that. Yeah. Well, I mean, the you know some of the easier answers is that are, are that um, that. The ones that certainly haven't made it predate Fanny Farmer's um, updating of the recipe format. It was really the Boston Cooking School and Fanny Farmer that so um, codified yeah. Yeah, the way recipes were written. And okay. a lot of the ones that I love hmm. are really hard to follow. I mean, <laughs> that's why I don't, I don't put any of them in this book or anywhere without putting them through a pretty rigorous process of okay. you know, Figuring reformatting out yeah. and, yeah, and making <laughs> sure that uh, it makes sense to people now. It, they're, they're only fun to read if you um, like the prose and if you want to go on a little kind of detective sure. mission. Because yeah. So I think that s- some of the ones that have survived have um, certainly been post-dated, you know, the, the, the formalization of a common recipe right. style. Um, and Stream of conscious recipe style was, was more like yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I think also that the... You know the Rombauer Becker family did a really good job of continuing to work on got it on joy and and mm-hmm. having it uh, be re- the one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to hear a lot more about some of these old authors and old recipes right after a quick little commercial interlude. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, 
Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market, whatever makes you whole. All right, we're back chatting more with Tamar Adler, whose latest book is Something Old, Something New. And uh, we were just talking about something old in the way of <laughs> recipe and cookbook authors. Um, so who else really fascinated you on this journey? And first of all, actually, what is like the method behind finding these cookbooks? Um. It was less method than um, kind of mania. Uh-huh. Uh, I More think, like madness. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I think I would have loved to have developed a method. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love old cookbooks and old menus so much that I found myself, you know, I, would, I was a um, scholar in residence at New York Public Library, which is a, a, they have a wonderful program where if you have a book contract, you can go and use a private room there and um, keep as many books as you can fit on a shelf. And so I would literally just sit at like their main bank of computers and, uh, you know, I, w- I w- would have a running list of cookbooks I had read mention of somewhere. Mm-hmm. I'd find those cookbooks and then, but they would then branch out to other ones, you know, um, or I would look up something like pate or like loaf or, ah. and just, literally collect That's a good like way to find them. hundreds yeah. of mm-hmm. those of, of titles and write them all in the little slips uh-huh. submit them by the huge batch and um, get the books and collect them on my shelf and go through them and do that for days on end um, and then I also went to the the University of, University of Pennsylvania has a great library mm-hmm. um, they have a an old books a rare books room that has a beautiful and they have a great culinary collection. That's great. And so I would just show up in the morning there uh-huh. and look things over. And I mean, I was a horrible record keeper, so I would like take photos, but then lose the photos on a certain phone, and then find them on an old computer, and then <laughs> try to write it down. And I mean, it was just sort of a mess. But um, but it wasn't. It was. N- it was mostly just branching interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the thing. Like, for, for a scholarly paper, maybe that would be a little problematic. <laughs> but for something that is, like, going to highlight what's most evocative to you, what yeah. you remember most is... What, I had, yeah, you know. I, the original um, proposal for the book was a very time-limited uh, survey. It was supposed to be from, like, 1940 to 1980. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I started it was evident to me that I was not going to hmm. write the book that I had sold. Instead, I was going to write a book that was just a revision of recipes that were interesting to me. Yeah. And actually part of what was um, really challenging about writing this book is that they're, I, I hope it's not at all evident to a reader, but they're not tied together by anything at all other than my interest. Mm. There's no time frame. (laughs) There's no... Cuisine? Is it like mostly French or... It ends up being mostly French, British, American. Uh And that's because um, the books that I was reading were in English. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, culinary insularity was the norm until um, 
until very recently. And certainly if you look at like the history of, um, you know, Chinese immigrants in America and, you know, it was horribly, horribly contentious and um, dramatic through the 19th century. So like when I'm writing about, you know, recipes from the 1800s, I think, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act is probably coincidental with a lot of the recipes that I'm writing about. We're the only Eastern cuisine where these, you know, chow mm-hmm. chop suey houses here. There, there's just no cross-pollination until pretty recently. And, you know, the globalization has changed that completely, but it's all very recent. Yeah. So you're getting a certain point of view through a these very old, yes yeah. yeah it's a very insular um kind of continental World european yeah. Mm-hmm. cuisine yeah um so who who is tell me about this um cookbook author um who was one of the first african-american cookbook authors that you stumbled across rufus estes rufus rufus i if if all that comes of the publication of this book is that everybody <laughs> starts reading Rufus Estes, I will be content. <laughs> How do we do that? Okay, so he wrote well, a book. His 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 single book is available through the University of Michigan's um, digital database of cookbooks. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called, but if you were to look up University of Michigan um, cookbook database, it's on there. It's called um, Good Things to Eat as Recommended by Rufus, I think. And it was published in 1911. Uh-huh. There's there it was reissued in the 90s or the aughts. So uh-huh. you can get that one. Okay. And I mean Bonnie Slotnick might have it, Amazon might have it, but it's with a the subtitle's wrong and I resent the subtitle. Oh. So I haven't gotten it. So um, it's not the original. Exactly. It's not the original because his subtitle is fantastic. <laughs> Good things to eat is recommended by Rufus or by Rufus Estes is obviously a great and descriptive title. And um it was changed in the second edition, which came out, you know, a hundred years later right. to good things to eat. Um, uh, uh, the recipes by the first African-American railway chef or first black chef or just something that, um, told you a little bit about him. Well, yeah, it just seems like it, it contextualized it in a, in a difficult and, in a difficult context that wasn't necessarily what I think he would have wanted. I mean, he, you know, he was an African-American. He was born a slave. Um, and it's, it was a pretty incredible thing that he went from, you know, being born a slave to being um, probably, well, one of the first and only um, pers- private stewards on a private, private chefs on mm-hmm. a, Steward was common, but yeah, a private first chef on a railway car. Um, And then he wrote this gorgeous book, and he's a beautiful writer. Mm -hmm. And um, he's he's empathetic and authoritative, and I really like the way he thinks about food. Mm -hmm. I think he was probably a great a great chef, and he does something in the book that's that we're now seeing cookbook authors do, Um, but. Which is which, as he combines in this one book, really um, rustic, like peasant Southern food. I mean, more like probably the food that he ate growing up, mm. like um, like mint vinegar and like a lot of the kind of housewife tricks that you would use to stretch ingredients and like 
um, you know, green tomato jam, mm. stuff that is, you know, really traditional southern food tied to the seasons, tied to the harvest, very, very close to the land food. Mm-hmm. That's combined in, a, in the same book as really high-end, you know, haute cuisine, French haute cuisine, which he had been trained in over his time mm-hmm. um, with the Pullman Car Company. And so it's like, you know, I think it's, pr- it's what a lot of um, chefs southern do, chefs yeah. certainly are doing now in single cookbooks, and chefs do do right now. There's been a real meeting of um, rustic cooking and high, you know, like haute cuisine. And in a lot of fine restaurants, you find people really, I mean, Sean Brock, you know, like mm-hmm. people doing the stuff that grandmas used to do when they had to, because they had no refrigeration just to like keep tomatoes and keep peaches. And, you know, and, and, and Rufus does it all in one book in 1911. Wow. So ahead of his time. So ahead of his time. Wow. Yeah. So much to learn from these old cookbook authors. I, yeah, I, I mean, if 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 they ever reissue his book again, I would do anything to write an introduction to it because I just think he's he's the best. He, yeah, I hope that we hear a lot more about him too and find out more yeah. about you know what else he did during his life and how he got to write a cookbook. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah I would like to know that too. Um, what, how do you describe or how do you define old? Cause that's kind of subjective. Like, did you stick with like a hundred years old for this book or did it? <laughs> mm, no, no, no okay. I didn't. I didn't. That was, um, you know, I think, uh, the, the epigraph to the book is from the Bible and it says, um, is there anything of which you can say, look, this is something new. Mm. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. I sort of think that you can nothing is new um and probably everything is is old Mm -hmm. and there were some recipes that you know were from the 1980s that I still felt a need to include um and do a little updating to because they were published in the 1980s but there were four foods that were eaten long before that and the 1980s was probably the most recent that you know that they were around but they actually were from you know the late 19th century mm-hmm. we kind of went on serving some version of them so i would look at the most recent um iteration mm-hmm. and even that clearly needed mm-hmm. updating well i'm just fascinated by how many of these recipes from another era um as interpreted by other cooks are still being eaten commonly you know deviled eggs deviled eggs well they they've they're one of the few that i think has okay. really survived as it was all right yeah I know, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a dated food, but we still enjoy it. Like, just we don't think of it as like an antique or something yeah. like that. Um, you have an older recipe, which I didn't realize, you know, people are making egg drop soup from um, an old, you know, I think it's not from a Chinese cookbook. It's uh, like an American cookbook that included this recipe for egg drop soup. Well, I no, that's just my recipe, but oh, okay. I included it because... Um, I wanted to include the fact that there was a fixation with, I mean, almost an obsession with um, Chinese cuisine yeah. and Chinese technique. Certainly, that that started with the, the chop suey houses, right. but slowly grew, especially after the end of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Certainly mm-hmm. after Nixon went to China, you know, suddenly you see people um, hiring Chinese chefs, Making Walks and stir-frying yeah. become chic. Steaming vegetables become chic. And then, 
you know, then egg drop soup is like this wonderful exotic thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I wanted to include it because I do feel like there's something about that book that's a kind of rough culinary history of what has happened in the U.S. um, for the last 150 years or so. Um, And I didn't think, I thought it was important to include this kind of culinary artifact that actually, I mean, it's a pantry soup. It's very much like stracciatella, the Italian version, which are just made with um, egg noodles. Same thing. I mean, noodles made of egg. You just put eggs through a fork and they kind of become these shreddy noodles inside your soup. Oh, Um, it's the same exact thing. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay. I love that, you know, there's all these like fashions too. You, You mentioned that zucchini was fashionable and chic. Back in I don't know the fifties yeah, or so, sixties yeah. and fifties, and now it's kind of like a boring yeah. ingredient, and other other ingredients are more in fashion. Um, so it, it, there's just oh my goodness, it's about all the time we have for today. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to ask though that um, once we're on the topic of eggs, um, that you know if you felt that. <laughs> You're going to, like, hate me for this question. <laughs> oh, no. Um, I'm going to talk about the egg spoon for a second. Uh, um, what you mention in your Grub Street diary is something, an utensil that was used to cook an egg on an open fire. Um, this isn't, like, an old utensil, though, is it? It's just a new... Um, it's uh, a griddle. I don't... Well, yeah. What I... Before I... Uh, we were given a handmade egg spoon as a wedding present. It was made by somebody in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um I think it costs like $50. They just made it in their home in a forge. You know, they're like a Vermont artisan. Um, And before that, we used this Jaffel iron, Mm -hmm. mostly because we we have a wood stove and my husband's parents have a wood stove and they've always cooked eggs in a Jaffel iron. But I'm sure that... um, I mean, many utensils were made out of iron with very long handles so that Mm -hmm. they could be held in a fire. So in that respect, it's a very old Mm. thing. It became, um, it sort of like showed up again because Angelo Garo, a wonderful blacksmith in um, California, in San Francisco, made one for Alice Waters. She cooked with it on 60 Minutes. People found it... um, very uh, off-putting, yeah. elitist, um, uh, and I and you know recently it has been mentioned, and I agree that a lot of the criticism actually has to do with um, it being a woman who mm-hmm. who did it rather than right. a man. So I drew a lot of fire when I in my Grub Street diet um, admitted <laughs> that I too, even though it made everybody so angry when Alice did it that I also have an egg spoon Mm -hmm. and I love it. And it's people's getting so angry about that. Um, was funny because it, it, for lots of reasons, first of all, it seemed like a terrible waste of energy on their parts, but uh, also because even in my Grub Street diet, I pointed out that I understood that it was going to, you know, make people cringe. But the fact is they're like, we, I heat this whole space with a wood stove Mm-hmm. which means that it's a perfect place to cook anything. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't... I, I I think it was like this whole controversy was really taken out of context in a lot of ways. It has been generally yeah. misquoted and miss... Every time it gets written about yeah. again... I mean, Kim, Kim Severson did not misquote anything. She got everything okay. right. But generally, every every iteration of the storytelling gets some of it mm-hmm. wrong. It's also not a story. I mean, um, 
I don't know why anybody would bother. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that, that, <laughs> that we're talking even about this, but I just thought it'd be worthwhile to mention because it's, you know, it's, it's, an, it's a, a cooking apparatus. It's a cooking, it's a cooking utensil. And um, my friend Samin was quoted in the Kim Severson New York Times piece as saying, you know, if we, nobody blinks an eye when a male chef uses some yeah. preposterous ingredient, some, some preposterous apparatus to cook some basic ingredient in some weirdo way. Right. And like... When Dave Chang started making his 12-hour eggs right, in an immersion right. circulator, everybody was like, oh, my God, he's the man. Right. And then, like, <laughs> when I'm, like, I had a fire going, so I cooked an egg in it, uh, you know, <laughs> people start flipping out and calling me names. And I, right. I think that has more to do with my lack of penis than it does mm-hmm. with my egg spoon. Yeah. And, you know, as this book and many others attest, there are so many ways to cook an egg. There are so I many ways like to cook an egg. <laughs> we need to, you should write a book about that next. Although, your next book is about how many ways to cook a chicken. Uh, well, to, oh, no. chicken leftovers. Leftovers. Yeah. Well, true. Yes. But no, yes. you're right. It is. Exactly. I'm it really is how many ways to cook to a that. chicken. Thank oh. you. Well, I'm sorry. We um, ran out of time for today. That's but great. Really, really appreciate hearing your thoughts on all things old, all things new. And I hope everyone gets their hands on this book. There's so much more to discover in it. So thank you so much, tomorrow. Thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. It's and thanks, everyone, wonderful. at Heritage Radio. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Oh, I like the way you do. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.